Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm New York Historical's president and CEO, Louise Mirror, and I am um, uh, really very, very pleased to see so many of you this evening for this very important topic and very important conversation between our, our two speakers. Tonight's program, Politics in the U.S. Supreme Court, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great and generous support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine speakers to this stage. I'd like to thank and recognize all the members of the, many members of the Chairman's Council in our audience this evening. Uh, we really, really do appreciate the support of Chairman's Council members, which enables us to do so much of our work at this institution. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. The Q&A is going to be conducted via written questions on note cards. You should have received a note card and pencil as you were entering the auditorium this evening, but my colleagues are still circulating in the auditorium, and they will be collecting cards later on. There's a formal book signing following the program, and copies of our speakers' books will be available for sale in our NY History store. We're thrilled to welcome James D. Zirin to back to the New York Historical Society. Mr. Zirin is a leading litigator, author, and the host and producer of the critically acclaimed cable television show, Conversations in the Digital Age on CUNY TV. He served as Assistant United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York in the Criminal Division under Robert M. Morgenthau. His latest book is Supremely Partisan, How Raw Politics Tipped the Scales in the United States Supreme Court. Our moderator this evening is Philip C. Bobbitt, the Herbert Wexler Professor of Federal Jurisprudence at Columbia University and Director of the Center on National Security at Columbia Law School. Professor Bobbitt has served in uh, served the U.S. government during six administrations, both Democratic and Republican. And in 2010, he was appointed to serve on the Advisory Committee on International Law to the Secretary of State. He's also the author of several books, including The Garments of Court and Palace, Machiavelli and the World that He Made. And he is editor of Gilmore's The Ages of American Law. As always, before we begin our program, I'd like to ask that you please make sure that anything that makes a noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our speakers tonight. Jim, I'd like to uh, make this something in the form of a viva voce, <laughs> uh, the sort of test that young scholars have to go through to get the award of their advanced degrees. So let me start out with some difficult questions. Kim Roosevelt, in his introduction to this wonderful book of yours, refers to a theory that the Constitution has clear answers in virtually all significant cases, and that differences of opinion, dissents, overrulings, divided votes, occur when some justices ignore the clear answers and substitute their own political agenda. Do you agree? Yes, I do. That's the basic argument of the book. Well, what do you say then when the Constitution doesn't have a, a clear answer, or perhaps it gives more than one uh, clear answer? I say that's why we have judges. <laughs> and so in that case, would it be legitimate for the judge to fall back on her political, religious, legal jurisprudential convictions? I think that's what uh, they do in many cases, although uh, I think they should start uh, with uh, conventional uh, judicial uh, vehicles of analysis and application of law. So uh, I think a justice should uh, start with the text of the Constitution. I think the justice uh, it's quite legitimate to look at the original understanding of the society at the time. And then I think it's very important for the judge to look at uh, the decided precedents. It's 
called stare decisis. You stand by your decisions. So the judge should look at how other judges have approached the same or similar problems and be guided by that. Uh, I think it's uh, often, uh, quite often, in as society evolves and in a complicated commercial and technological society, that none of those sources give a clear answer. Uh, in which case uh, the judge frequently uh, has to uh, punt and uh, apply one's own uh, uh, ideology or uh, uh, look to sources. Perhaps he can, as Holmes uh, said long before this current controversy, uh, uh, look at uh, political sources, economic sources, sociological sources, as Brandeis did as well, uh, to come up with uh, some basis for decision. When that happens, would you say the judge is acting in a partisan fashion? Well, what seems to be more than coincidence is that uh, on these hot-button issues, and we can talk about which ones those are, but I think the audience probably suspects which ones they are, uh, the justices appointed by Democratic presidents, whom we all uh, call the liberals, and the justices appointed by the Republican presidents, whom we all call the conservatives, seem to come up with the same answer. Uh, and the outcomes uh, are opposite. And when Scalia was around, there were these five to four decisions. Uh, the Chief Justice said that he didn't like five to four decisions, that there ought to be more of a consensus on the court, but your five to four decisions or six to three decisions. And the appearance certainly to the public, is that they've arrived at a partisan decision. Uh, and uh, that, uh, my argument is, leads to an erosion of confidence in the decisions of the court. Uh, we are absolutely committed in our country to a rule of law. And if A sues B and A is disappointed, uh, A shrugs his or her shoulders and accepts it because the judge was wrong, but that's what, how the judge ruled. That's the way uh, we uh, look at an umpire in a baseball game. But if the basis of the decision is political, as opposed to something that's grounded in the law and the Constitution, uh, or grounded in the facts of the particular <coughs> case, then the public will question the decision and question its legitimacy, and that's the basic argument of the book. But I just want to see whether or not the public is, is right to do so. I can see how the public would get that impression. But whether or not the public is, is actually right in having these doubts. For example, in the hot-button issues, gay rights, abortion, affirmative action, capital punishment, gun control, all which you mention in your book, is it your view that there is a clear legal answer derived from precedent, text, structure, doctrine, on all of those issues such that if a court disagrees, uh, perhaps along political or moral grounds, that they are therefore acting illegitimately, unlawfully, and politically? Well, certainly uh, they've been so criticized. Uh, for example, in the gay marriage decision, and I happen to agree with the gay marriage decision because I think our society has evolved to the point where uh, there's a certain decency that's embedded in the Constitution, if you will, uh, that would uh, say that gay marriage is appropriate and also as a practical matter from a judicial standpoint, we couldn't have gay marriage in some states and not have gay marriage in other states, because what do we do about couples moving from state to state? Uh, but um, if you look at the text of the Constitution, uh, as the dissenters pointed out, the four dissenters, uh, you can find no basis uh, whatsoever for gay marriage. The Constitution doesn't mention marriage. doesn't mention marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, does not contemplate that marriage is a fundamental right. Uh, the uh, issue of marriage, the legality of marriage, was left to the states. It was not a matter for the federal government. The dissolution of marriage uh, is a matter for the states, not for the federal government. 
So, and if you looked at the uh, original understanding, which is Scalia's test of the society at the time, who in 1791 uh, would have thought uh, that the Constitution uh, protected the right of same-sex couples to marry? It was unthinkable. And, I'm, and indeed, if you had asked uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes or, uh, or Louis Brandeis uh, what they would have thought of gay marriage, they would have told you what they thought of it, uh, but they certainly, and they probably would have been horrified, but they certainly wouldn't have looked to the Constitution as a source for uh, what their belief about it was. But we have uh, uh, the um, uh, Justice Kennedy, uh, who is a conservative, and uh, was a, an appointee of uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, Justice Kennedy um, uh, came to the view, and he had previously come to uh, conclusions that liberalized gay rights, uh, he felt that there was a right of decency that's embedded in the Due Process Clause, uh, that um, the Equal Protection Clause, uh, that authorized gay marriage, and he found four liberal colleagues to go along with them, and now we have gay marriage, and even President Trump says now that's well settled. Well, I don't know how well settled it was when it was decided, but it's well settled now. Then I'm a bit confused, because on the one hand, you say, you began your remarks by saying, you support the decision over, you think that gay marriage should not be consistent with the Constitution outlawed by states. On the other hand, you seem to say that there's no conventional legal basis, no persuasive conventional legal basis for reaching that. What I, would you have done had you been on the bench? I would have uh, voted with Kennedy had I been on the bench. Would that means uh, you'd be I, acting and, as a partisan? Well, I think that, that was, it's an example of a partisan decision. It happens to be a partisan decision I agree with. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, there have been partisan decisions that I disagree with. Uh, that I don't think are rooted in law either. So uh, it, uh, it's always the case in constitutional interpretation, very often it's whose ox is being gored. But the public, public isn't interested in doctrine. The public isn't interested in, uh, they may talk about strict construction. In most cases, they don't know what they're talking about. The public's interested in outcomes. And they talk about activist judges. Uh, well, it's all right to be an activist judge uh, in their view, if uh, you're uh, uh, affirming gun rights or if you are affirming political contributions, but it's not all right to be an activist judge if you're affirming abortion or gay marriage. Uh, then, um, then you're uh, being a judicial legislator, and uh, something has to be done about the Supreme Court. So we have an election every four years, so we can elect a president who promises to do something about the Supreme Court. Let me ask you, you, you're a successful litigator. You know many judges. You must have at some time in your career, as most lawyers do, thought about going on the bench. Does it bother you that <clears throat> uh, Richard Posner notwithstanding, <clears throat> most judges would dispute your account of judicial decision-making? Most of them would say, that's not what I do. I go to the materials first, or I have a hunch about where it should go, and I see the argument will write. If it doesn't, I change my mind, or I go through drafts, or I consult with my colleagues and circulate my drafts. Most judges would say that um, the portrayal in the public mind of the judge as a political actor is precisely what they don't do. Does that bother you, or do you think they're kidding themselves? I think they're kidding themselves. I, I, <laughs> I think uh, when in the confirmation hearings, when Chief Justice Roberts, for whom I have the most profound respect, <coughs> said that he was just going to be an umpire, a disinterested umpire calling balls and strikes, and he said no one comes to the ballpark uh, to see the umpire, they come to see the players, I, I think it was just nonsense. Absolute nonsense. He wasn't a disinterested umpire. He wasn't a disinterested umpire when he decided the Obamacare cases, and he wasn't a disinterested umpire when he's uh, uh, repeatedly uh, voted against affirmative action, uh, which was a uh, program that uh, he uh, advocated against when he was in the Justice Department and in the uh, uh, Nixon administration, and um, as a clerk to uh, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist. Uh, 
these uh, Holmes pointed out something that was very important, and that is that judges make the law. Uh, we hear all the time, judges can't be legislators. Uh, judicial legislation is something unconscionable. They have, we need judges who will discover the law, apply the laws, if the law is some brooding omnipresence up in the sky uh, that the judge finds and applies to the facts of a particular case. Fact is, the judge does make the law. He's supposed to make the law, he or she. And the only difference between uh, a judge who is not supposed to be a politician in robes and the members of Congress is that the judge makes the law in a different way from the way that uh, the legislator makes the law. And um, we could talk about how that different way works. I think we've touched on it, but... Um, uh, that's my theory of the judicial process, and it didn't originate with me. Well, Chief Justice Roberts has a good deal to say about this. I, I was just looking up a, <clears throat> a talk he gave in New England Law School within the last couple of months on this very issue. He, he says, characterizing our choices as or identifying them as liberal or conservative doesn't make any sense. He says, we had a case last term, but I'm quoting, which involved the question of whether or not certain discrimination laws should be applied to religious institutions. So you could challenge the hiring or firing of those ministers on the grounds that it was discriminatory. What is the liberal position in that? It is that you should extend discrimination law, or is it that you should protect the free exercise of religion to the greatest extent possible? I think there are ways, again I'm quoting, of characterizing us that make us that make more sense in terms of what we actually do. Some of my colleagues prefer to let, uh, to look strictly to the text of a statute. Others of my colleagues look more expansively to what they call the legislative history. Some of them think it's important what the framers of the Constitution were thinking about at the founding. Others in the court take a more flexible view and think that the interpretation of the Constitution should be informed by evolutionary developments. Those sorts of things make sense, although I see that it is easier to, for court reporters to say that a justice is liberal or that a justice is conservative, but I don't think that is helpful in what we actually do. Care to comment? Yes, I, uh, I think it's nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, Let's take the, uh, the issue of capital punishment, which is a fascinating issue that uh, Scalia was very clear about. And Scalia was a vigorous uh, supporter of capital punishment. And his basis, and he said this in opinion after opinion, and he said it extrajudicially, which means off the bench when he'd make speeches uh, to the Federalist Society and anyone else who cared to listen. And um, the, uh, uh, the two... Um, amendments uh, to the Constitution that may have application to uh, capital punishment. Uh, and um, the first is the Fifth Amendment, where there's a reference to it perhaps in two places, one where it says no one shall answer to a capital offense unless by indictment of a grand jury. So clearly Hamilton and Madison knew all about uh, capital punishment, and they thought that it should be inflicted. And uh, then it says, no one shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So give them a quick trial and give them a quick hanging. And uh, that was the way things operated then. That's the original understanding that appeals to the originalists. Uh, then there's another clause. And it says uh, that cruel and unusual punishments are, uh, are not to be permitted. Well, does cruel and unusual mean as it occurred in uh, 1791. 1791, it was a, uh, a crime to kiss your wife on, uh, on, or your husband on Sunday in a public place, and so you'd have 30 days in the stocks. Now, uh, was that cruel and unusual? I would say it's cruel and unusual, I think most of you would as well. At that time, it wasn't considered cruel or unusual. So you have two words in the text of the Constitution, and their interpretation is going to depend on the justice's point of view. The first is cruel. What is cruel? Does it mean cruel then or cruel now? And how cruel does it have to be to be cruel? And unusual, 
Stocks, unusual today, not unusual then. Maybe uh, twisting a thumbscrew, maybe the, uh, Trump wants to restore torture, so maybe twisting a thumbscrew is not so unusual these days. But uh, by far and large, um, people would say that uh, uh, administering a thumbscrew to someone who uh, uh, stole a kettle of fish would be an unusual punishment. So you have to look at these words and look at the values that were intended by the framers of the Constitution if you want to go back to originalism. Now, Chief Justice Warren looked at those words, and he said that to interpret the Eighth Amendment, which has to do with cruel and unusual punishments, uh, you have to look at what he called the evolving standards of decency uh, that uh, appeal to, or that are, that are implicit in a maturing society. Well, Scalia made a lot of fun of that. He said, evolving, I don't know what it means. What are the evolving standards of decency? He said, I don't know, and I don't want to know. So, um, and it was very witty, uh, but I think we know what the evolving standards of decency are. And, and you see the court wrestling in the capital punishment area, and they have over the years with uh, what uh, Blackman finally said he didn't want to get involved anymore in the machinery of death. You know, how much of an anesthetic must be administered? How much suffering does uh, the defendant undergo before uh, he or she expires? Um, uh, we've done away with the electric chair. We've done away with hanging. Uh, in fact, in more than half the states, we've done away with capital punishment or we haven't administered it. Now, Scalia tried to explain his philosophy. And where did it come from? He said it came from his Catholicism, which authorized capital punishment. Now, that's clearly not a source found in the Constitution. <laughs> and he said, uh, so somebody asked him where... In the Bible, does it talk about capital punishment? He said, well, it says in uh, the New Testament, in the book of St. Paul, he said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And he said, now who, uh, he said, the Lord isn't around to administer vengeance to these awful criminals we have, so their emissary in this world is the state. And so the state is authorized by the Bible. So then they said, well, Justice Scalia, the Pope just said, that he doesn't agree with capital punishment. And uh, Scalia said yes, but he didn't say it speaking ex cathedra, he spoke it in an encyclical. And as a Catholic, I'm only obligated to consider it. I'm not obligated to accept it. I've considered it and I reject it. Well, that sort of <laughs> dovetails with your idea <laughs> that the points of view that judges bring to these difficult decisions are a consequence of their identities, and that identity politics is the best way to understand the partisanship of the court. It's not just left, right, liberal, conservative. It's the collection of traits that we accumulate uh, through life and through our experiences that we're the product of our social class, our education, our religion, uh, and some philosophical circles, this is called, you are what you eat. It's an idea that we associate with sociology. But if it were really so clear that we are the consequence of our upbringing and our experiences, and that our political and legal decisions can be predicted by that, would you have expected Lyndon Johnson to be the architect of great civil rights revolution? I would have expected uh, John Conley to be a populist guy. If he were really just the result of your upbringing, would you have thought that Franklin Roosevelt and Theodore Roosevelt would have been the enemies of the great malefactors of wealth, uh, malefactors who had given both of them sizable inheritances? Well, they knew the whites of their eyes. <laughs> yes, that's true. They knew what they spoke of. Wouldn't Chris Christie and Rudy Giuliani be tribunes of the people right now? I mean, are we really the product of just where we grew up and Well, I think that an aspect of our uh, family background, our religious background, our educational background is our openness to what Warren called the evolving standards of decency in a maturing society. And if Lyndon Johnson 
uh, and I have no idea, and you may have a better idea, how he felt about uh, the issue of uh, civil rights uh, before the Civil Rights Act. Unquestionably, his thinking evolved over the years, and his thinking probably evolved because as a politician, he had access to many people uh, who spoke to him about their ideas, and he saw uh, the society around him, and he saw the way it was evolving. And as a legislator, and then finally as a president, and a great president, uh, he uh, was able to come to a conclusion that he might not have come to 20 years before. And I don't think, going back to the Supreme Court, I don't think we would have had um, a decision like Roe v. Wade 20 years before it was written. I don't think we would have had uh, the gay marriage case 20 years before. And society evolves, society changes, and it's not just liberals, uh, whatever that means, who recognize that. I think conservatives recognize that as well, because that was what uh, the framers of the Constitution intended. They left, as Roosevelt said in the uh, preface to my book, the Constitution is drafted with majestic ambiguity because Madison and Hamilton contemplated that future generations would wrestle with these issues and come to conclusions undreamed of in uh, 1789 or 1791. Jim, your book begins with a quotation from one of my heroes or heroines, if you prefer, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Quote, what I care most about is that we want this institution to maintain the position where it is not considered a political branch of the government. End quote. Is that a realistic hope? No. <laughs> I mean, it, it really depends on, on, on uh, Philip, on who's looking at it, but I think if you were to stop, well, first place, you could say stop people in the street, you know, and the polls have shown that 85% uh, of Americans can't name a single justice of the Supreme Court. And um, if Let me you just were to, interrupt you and say 10% of Americans with college degrees think that Judge Judy is a member of the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think she would probably shake them up, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, she might be a welcome addition, but uh, the, uh, I think uh, that uh, anyone who has uh, uh, read the decisions of uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg and who admires them as I do uh, would say that she brings to her jurisprudence a certain point of view, and it's a point of view with which not every American agrees, and uh, Americans who disagree will uh, say that she makes partisan decisions, and uh, they will say that uh, they don't agree with the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is drifting off to the left following uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The real problem is that Hamilton said uh, that uh, the judiciary is the weakest branch of the government and the least dangerous branch. And why did he say that? He said because the Supreme Court doesn't have an army the way the president does, and it doesn't have any money the way Congress does. It must look to the other branches, first to finance what they do there, and second, to carry out their decisions so that if they make a decision, there's a marshal who's going to uh, march into uh, um, Ole Miss and enforce the law. And um, if, uh, uh, however, uh, they have tremendous power. Their power is awesome because uh, they really uh, enunciate uh, the standards that guide us uh, in our political lives. And uh, the reason that they have this enormous power is because they are held largely in great respect, even if we disagree with them, because we believe in the rule of law and because uh, we, uh, uh, even if we disagree with their decisions, uh, we uh, are willing to abide by them. But if we come to the conclusion that the decisions are too partisan, uh, that was the greatest fear uh, of John Marshall, because if their decisions are too uh, partisan, uh, the president's not going to obey them, and uh, the people at large won't obey them. 
It's certainly true that uh, polls, you mentioned the Gallup polls in your book, that show that public confidence in the court has declined. You attribute this to an increasing partisanship. But I wonder if that's right. In the first place, confidence in our institutions seems to be declining across the board, in the executive, even in the military, which is held to about the highest of the, of the institutions in the public esteem. You say that this confidence is declining because of partisanship, but there are periods in our judicial history, the Vincent Court, where the court was much more partisan than it is now. I wonder if it isn't uh, something else that's leading to a loss of confidence and a distrust in all of our governmental institutions. We've had peers in the past that were much more partisan, but not necessarily more divided. Well, I don't think this general distrust in, in our institutions, uh, what I think is that we're extremely um, divided and polarized in our um, point of view uh, of, uh, in our perception of the institutions of government. And um, in that respect, we have, uh, uh, we just saw in the last election and from the returns that there's a very marked difference between the way people seem to perceive things in New York and California from the way they seem to perceive things in the so-called flyby states. And, um, the, uh, and we have uh, a very grave difference of opinion as to uh, what is our place in the world, where we ought to be going as a country, uh, in uh, a view of the presidency, uh, a view of, uh, of Congress, which has certainly been the bad actor. Everyone hated Congress for the last uh, eight years, and uh, I think they'll continue to hate Congress as time goes on. The courts, however, have been, um, I think, above the fray. They're supposed to be above the fray, but uh, my argument in the book is that unless uh, they become more uh, principled and less partisan, they will not be perceived uh, as being above the fray, and then uh, the rule of law will be somehow diluted. You mentioned John Marshall, who I know is a hero of yours, certainly a hero of mine. Most American lawyers and judges feel that way. Um, there probably is no sharper divide between people like me who teach constitutional law and people like Jim who write and, and think about it than the idea that, as you put it, John Marshall arrogated to the Supreme Court the power of judicial review. Constitutional law professors really hate that. <laughs> and we, we are quite uh, allergic to the notion that Marbury versus Madison established the principle of judicial review. As you note in your book, uh, the Federalist Papers very clearly lay out the case for judicial review. Number 78, written by Hamilton, says that it's essential to the Constitution. As I read Marshall's argument, it goes something like this. To decide a case, a judge must know what the law is so that he or she can apply it. Right? No debate about that. In our system, a, a professed or suggested rule of decision is not the law whether it comes from the president, an executive order, or some action, or from the Congress in a statute, or a state legislature in a bill, if it is inconsistent with the Constitution. Right? We all agreed on that? Therefore, when a judge has a case to decide, the judge must always find out that the rule to be applied is constitutional, or it isn't law. And if it isn't law, it can't be applied. And that's the argument I see in Marbury. What's wrong with that argument, Jim? Well, I think uh, there's nothing wrong with the argument. In fact, uh, it, the greatest bulwark of liberty that uh, we have is the principle of judicial review. But what I think, the reason I say that he seized the power or arrogated the power is it's in the Federalist Papers, and the Federalists all thought so, uh, but Thomas Jefferson and the Republicans did not. 
and uh, they were very suspicious of judicial review, and Jefferson didn't want uh, judges uh, telling him what to do and they, uh, as president. Uh, in fact, he sought to impeach uh, one of them. Uh, his name was Samuel Chase, appointed by George Washington, and he was the only justice of the Supreme Court ever to be impeached. He wasn't convicted. Uh, and what were the charges against him? The charges against him were that the House of Representatives thought he was too partisan. Uh, and uh, Jefferson had a pal named uh, uh, Randolph from Virginia who was the prosecutor of poor Samuel Chase who had to um, stand uh, trial for his office uh, because they thought he was too partisan. But my point is that here we go back to uh, the text. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say that uh, the Supreme Court has the power to declare an act of Congress unconstitutional? Nowhere in the Constitution does it say that the Supreme Court has the power to declare an act of the president unconstitutional. So where does that power come from? It comes from John Marshall. He decided that that's what they should have. And um, in 1803, the year before Alexander, his pal Alexander Hamilton was killed in a duel, uh, John Marshall wrote this marvelous opinion, uh, which has been unquestioned ever since, that the Supreme Court has the power to declare what the law is, which means we have a hierarchy of law, and if any law is uh, un in the Republic is contrary to the Constitution, it can be invalidated by the courts. I'm afraid we're gonna to have to agree to disagree on this one, Jim. <laughs> uh, people who, who teach constitutional law probably would say, at a minimum, that Article 6, which says that uh, the Constitution shall be the supreme law of the land and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Anything in the laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding is about as clear an expression of the power of judicial review, at least as to state courts and state bills and state legislatures as you can get. And I think your friend Justice Scalia would have said that the Federalist Papers are important not because they were written by Hamilton and Madison or because Thomas Jefferson agreed with some numbers or not with others, but because they were the advertising for the Constitution, and they are our best clue as to what the ratifiers thought they were getting when they ratified the Constitution. I was quite struck by a, a number of very vivid phrases in, in this well-written uh, and, and gripping uh, book. But I did think you gave an unsympathetic portrait of Justice Thomas. I, you and I may well disagree about the persuasiveness of the slaughterhouse cases, but <laughs> I wonder if you would agree with me that the confirmation hearings for Justice Thomas may account for some of his alienation. And I wanted to ask if confirmation hearings generally haven't been so politicized that the uh, court has suffered because of their tone and their nature. Justice Roberts, in the interview I mentioned earlier, suggested, and I quote, that the Senate should ask a nominee, what books did you read growing up? What made you want to be a lawyer? What made you want to be a judge? End quote. What questions would you ask a nominee? It looks like we're going to have a, a new one sometime in the near future. I would ask him all those questions, and I think Roberts is absolutely right. I think the legitimate questions are uh, what are the uh, judge's qualifications, uh, what uh, has been the judge's educational background. Uh, uh, we have seemed to have moved toward the British system uh, where we promote justices of the Supreme Court from the lower federal courts. This has not always been the case but it seems to be more and more the case now. And even Scalia said uh, we should look for new justices who not necessarily come from the lower federal courts, uh, but the three uh, candidates who uh, have been mentioned uh, in, uh, as Trump's finalists, uh, who, from which uh, three he will appoint one, uh, are all from members of lower federal courts. Uh, but I think all those questions as to honesty, integrity, qualifications, background, uh, intelligence, all that is, is very important. 
and very legitimate. We've moved since, uh, I think, the Bork controversy um, in 1991 uh, toward uh, a politicization of the appointment process. I think it's very unfortunate that the Republicans are as guilty as the Democrats. Uh, here you had Merrick Garland, by any standard, uh, was qualified in terms of background, experience, intelligence, uh, any qualification you could think of. He wasn't even given a hearing. And why wasn't he given the hearing? Because Mitch McConnell said uh, that the next justice uh, will be appointed by the people of the United States, uh, which I think any strict constructionist uh, uh, and textualist would say it appears nowhere in the Constitution. Well, if, you, if that's true, the people of the United States elected Hillary, Hillary Clinton, not in accordance with... Uh, uh, the uh, rules are set forth in the Constitution, but in terms of the popular vote. And yet, we, um, he wasn't even granted a hearing. Obama was denied an appointment, and now Trump is going to have an appointment, who I think is inevitably going to be uh, a justice of a very different uh, philosophical stripe. I suppose you would caution a president uh, in making a nominee uh, that the president doesn't control these these uh, men and women after they're appointed. There are many wonderful portraits of uh, juridical figures in this book. Holmes plays an important role in the book. But I didn't hear one story that I love. T.R. appointed Holmes on the recommendation of Henry Cabot Lodge. And the first case to come before and the real significance was the Northern Securities case. Holmes against all expectations, voted against the government and infuriated President Roosevelt. And Roosevelt was indiscreet enough to say to some friends of his, I could carve more backbone out of a banana. <laughs> and Washington being a very small society then is now, this got back to Holmes, who was uh, wounded three times in the Civil War. He was a very uh, resolute figure. He ran into Roosevelt at the racetrack. And the president came up to him with a big smile, shook his hand. The justice said, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I mentioned a number of uh, <laughs> charismatic figures who, uh, who take, the, take their place in this wonderful book. But I think the most important figure, perhaps, is not any particular individual, but the figure of the court. At the end of the book, if I can find it, Jim writes quite movingly about the, about the court. He says, if a demagogue is elected president by a populist majority, and seeks mass deportation of American citizens because of their parents or grandparents, or advocates the exclusion of immigrants because of their religion, or punishment for a woman or her doctor over an abortion, or wants to exclude immigrants or profile citizens because of their religion, we have to count on the Supreme Court, independently of the election returns, based on law, not on popular sentiment, to restrain him emphatically declaring what the law is, Marshall's famous phrase, and that he has exceeded its bounds. I'm going to turn to a question style, but I want to make sure that I have expressed myself clearly. This is not a cynical book. It is not a book that's meant to turn you off of law and the possibilities of justice in our system. If there's politics in law, well, there's politics in a lot of things. But it doesn't mean that the politics has chased the law out of the chambers of the US Supreme Court. Here are some uh, cards. I think we have time for, oh, they, the returns are coming in. Don't read the ones from Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> a question, would you consider Bush versus Gore a clear example of a decision driven by politics? Easy question. Yes. 
<laughs> if the Democrats reject the Trump nominee, what is the possibility they can block the nominee for all four years? Well, that's a political question uh, as to, uh, first place, in, in two years, the uh, Congress will be elected and a number of senators will be up for election. And the question will be the uh, reaction of the electorate to, uh, to that position. Uh, the Democrats are all over the lot. I mean, I think they're kind of in disarray because uh, I don't know that um, Chuck Schumer can be seen to reject a mainstream conservative uh, nominee of a Republican president simply on grounds of ideology. And at times, he said on television, if I understood him correctly, there he can't conceive of anyone, anyone who was appointed by Trump who could be supported by Democrats. Uh, then he later said, well, he, uh, what he meant was anyone who's outside the mainstream. I don't know what the mainstream means. But uh, I think that uh, you have candidates who uh, uh, certainly have indicated a, uh, an ideology and position that are, is completely outside the political spectrum, and you have others who are mainstream, rock-rib, uh, conservative uh, candidates. And uh, they, uh, in my view, uh, the, the Democrats turn down, use the filibuster power uh, to turn down, um, uh, the Republicans would need 60 votes to, for confirmation, uh, which they don't have. They would need a Democratic coalition. But if they turn down uh, a, a decent candidate uh, who is well qualified because uh, Trump nominated that person or because uh, they disagree with uh, the approach that uh, uh, candidate has taken to the Constitution, I think. Uh, they would be they would be undermined politically in the same way uh, that uh, O'Connell was uh, undermined politically in the minds of many when he wouldn't even grant Merrick Garland a hearing. This is a slightly technical question: Were there ways Obama could have appointed Merrick Garland without the consent of the Senate? No. There's some debate about this that that if at the end of the preceding Senate and before the swearing-in of the new Senate, the president had used his power to, uh, to make appointments in the absence of a Senate in session, that he might have done this. I, I, I'm not sure the country would have uh, accepted this, but there is some well, argument and, that's and, possible. Well, uh, and the appointment have only lasted for the term of the, uh, of the new Senate, exactly. so it would not have been a permanent appointment, but I think there was a Supreme Court case on this, and while they were as usual all over the lot, what I got from it was that they basically felt the Senate, where Congress was almost always in session, and that the recess appointment power was very limited. And that wouldn't have worked. There were a number of other um, uh, theories that were advanced, and you probably would have had to go to court to establish them. Uh, one was that the Republicans waived their right to uh, uh, have a hearing and waive their right uh, to a vote because uh, they wouldn't even grant a hearing. I don't think that would have washed and in court. And the other uh, uh, was uh, uh, that Garland and Obama could have sued uh, O'Connell to get a uh, McConnell to get a, a writ of mandamus to require him to hold hearings. And can you imagine what that would have looked like? Uh, and where would have wound up in the Supreme Court? And who knows what they would have said. So. Do you think, I think you touched on this, Jim, do you think it is reasonable to continuously appoint Supreme Court judges from the federal judiciary as opposed to state judges, governors, former senators, ex-presidents, and so on? Well, Holmes said, uh, as you know, the life of the law is not reason but experience, and I think, guess who's more experienced than a lower court federal judge who has to filter all these various problems that uh, and issues that reach the Supreme Court. Uh, so it's a marvelous proving ground, but some of our greatest justices uh, have not been uh, federal judges. Uh, and you could just go back to uh, Holmes, who was a state court judge. Uh, Brandeis was appointed directly from the bar, uh, as was Felix Frankfurter. Uh, 
uh, and um, Elena Kagan was a solicitor general. She was never a federal judge. Um, so they can come from a diversity of backgrounds. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was a, a, a state court judge. Uh, Lewis Powell was a, a highly respected and venerated lawyer. So I don't think that it's indispensable that they all be judges, but if you look at uh, what's there now and what is talked about uh, for the ninth seat, uh, you'll have um, a court that consists of uh, uh, eight former federal judges, Kagan being the exception, and uh, you will, uh, uh, and we could go into as well, this whole issue of identity politics and uh, uh, the gender, the, the religion, um, the ethnicity of the appointees. And, um, and that's also very interesting because these wonderful people, uh, Madison and Hamilton, who gave us this terrific constitution we have, uh, were white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And uh, we've had 112 justices of the Supreme Court, 89 of whom have been white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. When Scalia was around, there were six Catholics and three Jews. Now, five Catholics and three Jews. Two of the three appointees uh, uh, appear to be Catholic, uh, uh, prospective appointees. Uh, and um, so you have a question, is there sufficient diversity on the court? Are they representative of the broad spectrum of the public? And um, the, um, you know, are there uh, enough women? Are there too many women? You have one wise Latina woman, should we have another wise Latina? I mean, how do uh, identity politics plays a tremendous role in the whole appointment process? Given her public statements regarding President Trump, does Justice Ginsburg have a moral obligation to recuse herself on f potential future cases directly involving President Trump? No. <laughs> and, and she won't. <laughs> uh, the, what is interesting is you said a moral obligation. Uh, I, I assume because you are a professor of law, you chose that word advisedly. That the first question is, when she made the public statement she made, uh, was there a violation of the judicial canons of ethics, uh, which provide that a judge shall not take a position, and supplies the federal judiciary, uh, in a partisan election. The only problem with the argument that she acted unethically is uh, that the federal judicial canons of ethics don't apply to justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. So she was as free as you or I to say anything she wanted to say. Um, and I think that uh, if you want to make a moral argument, um, I think based on statements that Trump made during the campaign, uh, which so obviously uh, and on their face violated the Constitution, uh, summarily executing Sergeant Bergdahl uh, for a crime that didn't even carry the death penalty, uh, uh, deporting uh, citizens of the United States who were born here because their parents were here illegally, um, uh, cracking down on Muslims and the like, the things that you read from the book. Uh, I think who but a justice of the Supreme Court judicially or extrajudicially, uh, is better equipped to come out and say to the American people, what he's saying is off the wall. It's over the top. Conservative judges, originalists, textualists, I don't care who they are, would have to find uh, that he was advocating something that violated the Constitution. Will or should the Roberts Court seek to check the continued power shift from Congress to the executive branch? Well, I think they uh, tried to check it when Obama was the president. Now that Trump is the president, it remains to be seen, uh, particularly in the area of administrative law and the powers of the agencies. Uh, and uh, the, you have the issue of uh, regulation. Uh, for example, uh, Trump says he wants to build a wall um, between the United States and Mexico. The wall will be very costly. He's not going to get um, the Mexicans to pay for it. Uh, at least uh, there's no indication that they're interested in paying for it. Uh, the, uh, uh, he said uh, uh, he's not going to, uh, uh, he's 
has a background as a builder, uh, so he has to get someone to build the wall. He said, well, China will build the wall. They know how to build walls. Well, There's no indication that President Xi of China has any interest in building the wall or that even Trump can make a deal with China that would be uh, on economically acceptable terms. Now, uh, Scalia, uh, now there is a statute uh, of uh, Congress, which is the, the, the fencing, I call it the fencing act, which authorized a fence which we never really fully built between the United States and Mexico. And it says, in addition, as all these statutes of Congress do, and this is wonderful business for lawyers and judges, uh, that uh, the uh, executive branch can do anything that's necessary and appropriate uh, to uh, implement the fence. So he wants to build the wall based on the necessary and appropriate language. Now, Scalia, in the context of environmental protection, said that that doesn't give a blank check to the executive or to the agencies. Uh, as to uh, what they can do. Uh, but it, you have to do a cost-benefit analysis. He got that from Posner, I guess, his, his nemesis. And, uh, he, and if you run a cost-benefit analysis on the wall, uh, you'll see that the costs far outweigh the, the benefits. It's going to cost us billions and billions of dollars uh, to complete the wall. Part of the border, the Rio Grande River and the mountains, as Senator McCain says, it's impossible to build a wall there. So where are you going to build the wall? And if you look at illegal immigrants from Mexico, you'll find that most of them come over here not on foot across the border where they're going to die in the process, uh, but they, they fly on visitor's visas to Kennedy Airport, and they overstay their welcome. So where do you build the wall? In Brooklyn? and Queens? <laughs> <laughs> So I, my cost-benefit analysis is that uh, there are a few benefits that I see in building a wall, except it's an assertion of sovereignty, and boy, do we have enough sovereignty now. Uh, and uh, there, I don't see uh, that it's, and I, I think the cost is going to far outweigh whatever benefits are involved. I don't think we have a handle on how much it will cost. Jim, we have time for one last question. This is from Indiana, I hope. <laughs> Doesn't say. Would you consider the decision in Brown versus the Board of Education reversing prior Supreme Court uh, rulings a good example of the evolving norms of society? Yes, I mean, I I think so. I think uh, that we came to a point where we realized that um, uh, Plessy v. Ferguson, which was decided in uh, the late 1800s, that said uh, separate facilities are uh, equal, uh, separate facilities, if equal, uh, would not violate uh, the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause, uh, that this was an expression of racism. Now, if you were to go back to uh, the Congress uh, that, uh, who ratified the framers and the people who ratified the 14th Amendment, and if you ask them, is there any way that the phrase equal protection of the law was, was their understanding, that it would apply to school segregation, they would have laughed at you. Of course, they didn't think it applied to school segregation. And there was uh, a brilliant dissent in that case. Uh, the Constitution is colorblind, uh, dissent of the first Justice Harlan. But nevertheless, that was the law throughout the 20th century until 1954. And then Chief Justice Warren, who was an iconic figure and uh, was a political figure, didn't come from the federal courts. He'd been a prosecutor and, uh, and, and the governor of California. He'd run for uh, president, run for vice president. And he was able to get a consensus and a unanimity in the court, even though they were conservatives. And that was the Brown v. Board of Education decision. But I don't think it's reflective of the Constitution. It's reflective of an evolving standard in society, which we now have come to accept. I think uh, Jim is going to sign books outside, and we should all thank him for coming as we thank you for coming. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs. We also want to thank you, Philip Bobbitt, for a great job as our moderator tonight. (laughs) 
And for those of you who don't know, our museum store is on the 77th Street side. The book signing is on the Central Park West. And please stay for the book signing and come back again. It was wonderful having our auditorium full again. Thank you. Thank you.